I'm Adrian Curtis, formerly senior lecturer in Hebrew Bible, but now an honorary research fellow at the University of Manchester. Today, we're thinking about biblical archaeology and asking how the results of archaeology can shed light on the New Testament and its Jewish setting. If my memory serves me correctly, virtually every year while I was teaching, I used to contribute a section on archaeology to the introductory course in Old Testament Hebrew Bible. This element was included because we felt it important that students should have some awareness of the geographical and historical context from which the Bible emerged. Before going any further, I ought to say something about the term biblical archaeology. Some people disapprove of it, thinking that it implies that there is a difference between biblical archaeology and other forms of archaeology. This is, of course, not the case. The caricature of the biblical archaeologist with Bible in one hand and spade in the other reflects a misunderstanding which is, in the main, a thing of the past. But there seems to be no agreed alternative. Some prefer a geographical designation. But which term should be used? Most have problems. Israel, or even ancient Israel, meant different things at different times. Palestine is often used as a primarily geographical designation for the Southern Levant. But of course, to some, it has political overtones. The term Holy Land can also be problematic. Holy to whom? And not all think of the land as holy. For the period we're thinking about, perhaps Judea would be an option. But there is also the question of the geographical horizons and the relationship with Near Eastern archaeology or Eastern Mediterranean archaeology. To me, and I think to many others, biblical archaeology is a convenient catch-all term for archaeological discoveries which are in any way relevant to the study of the Bible, irrespective of precise geographical or temporal considerations. Archaeology can be defined as the study of the material remains of an earlier culture. Such remains are many and varied and may include written records, as well as buildings, artefacts and such like. But what information is it reasonable to expect archaeology to provide? The question needs to be asked because exaggerated claims have sometimes been made on the basis of archaeology. Claims like archaeology has proved or archaeology has disproved something or other. I regularly used to warn students to become suspicious as soon as such statements were made. It's perhaps because archaeology is thought to be more scientific than some other disciplines which have contributed to the study of the Bible that words such as proof are used. Although archaeological techniques have improved dramatically over the years, it is essential to remember that interpretation is often as necessary in the understanding of an archaeological discovery as it is in understanding a biblical text. It may not always be the case that an ancient site has been accurately identified, or that an inscription has been correctly read and translated, or that the precise purpose of a building or artifact has been understood. Another caricature is that buildings or objects which cannot easily be identified are too easily labelled cult buildings or cult objects, unless the object has a hole in it, in which case it's labelled a loom weight. I believe that archaeology's major contribution to biblical study has been contextual. It has helped to move the Bible off the lectern, to bring it out of isolation and open a window onto the world in which those who produced it and some of those mentioned in its pages lived. It's probably true to say that biblical archaeology has made a greater impact on the study of the Hebrew Bible rather than the New Testament. 
To quote an eminent 20th century biblical archaeologist, G. Ernest Wright, the excavator notably of the important Israelite city Shechem, and I quote, the period covered by New Testament history is so short that archaeology cannot be expected to be as helpful as it has been with the Old Testament, where over 1500 years is surveyed. But of course, this doesn't mean that archaeology cannot shed valuable light on the New Testament period. Something else needs to be said before proceeding. There has been a tendency for those visiting ancient sites, perhaps pilgrims in particular, to want to see the actual spot where an event in the Bible happened. Those who want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus may have to be reminded that things have virtually certainly changed between the time of Jesus and the date of the remains or streets through which they're walking. Pilgrims in Jerusalem following the Via Dolorosa, Jesus's route to Golgotha, are treading on a street level which is significantly higher than it would have been in Jesus' time. And in any case, they may well be following the wrong route. I hasten to add that this need not detract from the spiritual or devotional significance of what they're doing. The town of Cana of Galilee, the setting of Jesus's first miracle, according to John's Gospel, was traditionally identified with Kepha Kenna, nearly four miles northeast of Nazareth. There, visitors would be shown the spring from which the water was drawn, which was turned into wine. But it's more likely that Cana was Kirbet Kana, eight miles north of Nazareth, where there is evidence of occupation in the Roman period. Apparently, medieval travellers reported the existence of a monastery and a church there, and recalled that the church claimed to possess one of the water jars used by Jesus. Both traditions reflect the need to see an actual spot, rather than being satisfied with gaining a general impression of what Galilee may have been like in Jesus's time. Telhum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is now generally agreed to be the site of Capernaum. The remains of a Jewish synagogue were found there, which used to be pointed out as the place where, according to Mark chapter 1 verse 21, Jesus preached one Sabbath day. However, it is now widely accepted that the synagogue whose remains have been discovered there probably dates from the third century at the earliest, and perhaps from the fourth or fifth century, certainly well after the time of Jesus. However, there is evidence to suggest that it was built on the site of an earlier synagogue. While talking about Capernaum, it is worth mentioning that excavations of an insula or block of housing close to the site of the synagogue and dating from about the first century BCE suggested that one of the houses had subsequently undergone a significant development in about the 4th century CE, and that in the 5th century, an octagonal church had been constructed above it. This gave rise to the suggestion that the site was venerated as the house of the disciple Peter, which Luke chapter 4 verse 38 implies was close to the synagogue, and that subsequently two churches in succession were built over it. If this identification is correct, and it may be a big if, it may illustrate a feature relevant to the study of ancient sites and landmarks, namely that once a place has been identified as holy, it retains its sanctity through successive occupations. This could account for the building of a new synagogue on the site of an earlier one, as at Capernaum, and a change of religion might be involved. Excavations on the site of the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem 
suggests that it was overbuilt in the time of Hadrian by a pagan sanctuary dedicated to Asclepius and subsequently by a Byzantine church and then a crusader church. Having suggested the need to exercise caution in applying the results of archaeology to the study of the Bible, it's time to turn to some excavations and discoveries which do shed light on the New Testament period and the area of Judea in particular. Especially noteworthy are the building projects of Herod the Great in major cities such as Samaria, Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast, and of course, Jerusalem. In particular, the temple area, whose platform of massive stone blocks became a place of Jewish pilgrimage and prayer, what was once known as the Wailing Wall, but now the Western Wall. Looking at what remains of the platform today, one can imagine the incredulity with which Jesus's words would have been greeted when, according to Matthew 24, verse 2, he pointed to the temple buildings and said to his disciples, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Herod also had building projects carried out in other places, including Hebron, the traditional site of the cave of Machpelah, where the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were said to have been buried. Excavations have taken place at Herod's palaces at Jericho, Herodium, and on the spectacular site of Masada, overlooking the Dead Sea. Herod's building activities transformed the land, and their remains open a window onto the Judea of the time of Jesus' birth. It's impossible to refer to all the places which have been excavated, which feature in the accounts of the life of Jesus. But mention could be made of Nazareth, where subsequent building activity has obscured much of the evidence of what the town was like in the first century. However, no remains of significant buildings from the early Roman period have been found. And such evidence as there is suggests that Nazareth was a small village preoccupied with agriculture. Here it's appropriate to mention the excavations which have taken place at nearby Sepphoris, a city developed by Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, as his capital in Galilee. Sepphoris has been revealed as a major city, certainly in the late Roman and Byzantine periods. But there is enough evidence to suggest that this was also the case in the early Roman period. However, surprisingly, Sepphoris is not mentioned in the New Testament, and there is no suggestion that Jesus ever visited it. Various suggestions have been made to account for this. Perhaps Jesus did go there, and its absence from the gospel accounts is merely accidental. Perhaps he deliberately chose not to go there. Or perhaps any mention was consciously avoided or removed because of the city's nature as a centre of Hellenistic culture. We simply don't know. What can be said is that what is known about Sepphoris sheds light on what Galilee was like in the time of Jesus. And perhaps alerts us to the tensions which existed between more traditional Jewish communities and those which had adopted aspects of pagan culture. Archaeological discoveries have shed light on aspects of everyday life. Evidence of the construction of aqueducts, sometimes of considerable length, shows the importance of providing a water supply where there was not an adequate local source. These include one built by Pontius Pilate to bring water into Jerusalem from pools south of Bethlehem. Among objects which are of special interest in terms of relevance to imagining the local setting of New Testament traditions 
is an ancient fishing boat dating from the first century CE, discovered in 1986 on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps unsurprisingly, but inappropriately, this has become known in some circles as the Jesus boat. There is, of course, no evidence that it had any connection with Jesus. And it's better thought of as illustrating the type of vessel with which Jesus and his Galilean disciples would have been familiar. On the domestic level, discoveries include, for example, what houses would have been like, the various types of pottery vessels used, and objects such as grape or olive presses, and stone mills, which would have been turned by a donkey. And of course, we have evidence of the types of tomb which were constructed, and ossuaries used for the storage of bones, the gruesome relic of a heel bone through which a spike had been driven, was found in a burial jar in Jerusalem, a victim of crucifixion. Before turning to some examples of written material, I ought to stress that archaeology relevant to the study of the New Testament setting is not confined to the area of Judea. There is not time to do more than mention the fact that excavations have been carried out at many cities which featured in Paul's missionary journeys or among the seven churches of Asia Minor, referred to in the book of Revelation. Places such as Antioch, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus and Athens. Paul, we are told, would make the synagogues in cities he visited, places like Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Thessalonica, Corinth and Ephesus. In Athens, we are told that Paul argued with Jews in the synagogue, and with devout persons in the marketplace or Agora, Acts 17, verse 17. During an excavation in the Agora at Athens in the summer of 1977, a piece of marble, apparently once part of a frieze over a doorway or niche, was discovered. The marble fragment was incised with the images of a seven-branched candlestick, the menorah, and a lulav, or palm branch, suggesting that the building may have been a synagogue. But this building is thought to date from the late third or fourth century, so cannot have been the actual synagogue visited by Paul. Perhaps like Capernaum, it was on the same site, but that is speculation. To be anecdotal for a moment, the story of Paul's preaching in Athens took on a greater significance for me when I stood on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, looking up towards the ruins of the Parthenon on the Acropolis and imagined Paul daring to tell his Athenian hearers that God was not to be found in splendid temples such as the one which towered above them. Excavations at Rome have yielded a picture of what the city was like in the first century when the first Christian community was established. A structure at Rome which is of particular interest is the Arch of Titus, erected in 81 CE in honour of the emperor whose campaigns included the conquest of Jerusalem in 70 CE. One of its panels shows booty taken from the Jerusalem temple, including the seven-branch menorah, being carried into Rome in a triumphal procession. Finally, I want to comment briefly on written material. This could be of various types, sometimes apparently very mundane, though nonetheless important. For example, personal names scratched or carved onto ossuaries. Then there are more impressive inscriptions, such as one carved on stone found in the theatre at Caesarea, which almost certainly refers to Pontius Pilate, even though it is damaged and the beginning of the name is missing. Particularly noteworthy is an inscription written in Greek 
from the site of Herod's temple in Jerusalem, warning Gentiles not to enter the court of Israel on pain of death. This shed lights on the incident recorded in Acts 21, verses 27 to 29, when Paul was accused of having actually brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Then there are texts written on papyrus or parchment, among which are the Dead Sea Scrolls, widely recognised for their importance for the study of the text of the Hebrew Bible and for the light they shed on a branch of Judaism in the closing years BCE and the early years CE. They'll be discussed in detail in another talk, but it would be strange not even to mention them here. Less well known, and largely from a rather later period, perhaps the third or fourth century, are the papyri from a place called Oxyrhynchus in Egypt. Among other things, these contain what purport to be sayings of Jesus, many of which are variants of those preserved in the Gospels, but others which are not otherwise known. Possibly also from Oxyrhynchus, but certainly from Egypt, comes what may well be the earliest known fragment of the New Testament, a fragment from John's Gospel. This is an appropriate discovery with which to bring this podcast to its conclusion, because it is now located here in Manchester, in the John Rylands Library. The fragment was part of a selection of papyri purchased on behalf of the library by Bernard P. Grenfell during a trip to Egypt in 1920. Like other early Christian works found in Egypt, the manuscript from which this fragment came took the form of a codex, that is a book, not a scroll. So there's text on both sides. It measures just 8.9 centimetres by six centimetres. The first side of the fragment contains the beginning of seven lines from John chapter 18, verses 31 to 33 while the reverse contains the end of seven lines from John 18, verses 37 to 38. It can probably be dated to the first half of the second century CE. And in addition to textual information, it provides us with invaluable evidence of the spread of Christianity. It is remarkable to think that among the books being read by Christians in Egypt at the time was John's Gospel, widely regarded as one of the latest of the books of the New Testament so perhaps with, within 50 years of its being written. In this survey, I've only been able to scratch the surface, but to use archeological language, I hope I may have encouraged you to dig deeper. <laughs>